Amen. Amen. Why don't you give it up for Jesus, you guys? Give it up for the band. Just say thank you. Uh, you guys can take a seat. You can take a seat. Hey, uh, good morning. Welcome. So glad you guys are with us. You fought through the rain and the tropical storm to be here, so you're, you're committed. That's great. Thank you, guys. Uh, hey, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be at today. Ephesians 6. Also, Colossians 2. But Ephesians chapter 6 is our main text. So glad you guys are here. Um, I want to kind of explain just where we're at, what we're doing as a church. Um, earlier this year, we started the book of Jonah. That feels like forever ago. I don't know if you remember that, but we went to the book of Jonah, spent some time walking through that. Uh, just how do we live with like a missional lifestyle? How do we go to the furthest person, the furthest people group that might be different than us, like Jonah talks about? And then we went through like the, really the rest of the year we were in, in Hebrews. And we just kind of walked through the book of Hebrews for like seven months. So much there. And we felt the need to really kind of end our year by doing something called Real Talk, which is basically we're looking at a topic a week going the gospel and fill in the blank, uh, the gospel and honor, the gospel and grief, last week the gospel and politics, uh, the gospel and race, the gospel and sexuality, the gospel and justice. These are some of the topics we'll be going over. And our, kind of our prayer, our thought behind that has been, as you know, um, Lord, when, whenever God wrote a, an epistle, whenever an apostle wrote an epistle, the book of Ephesians, Corinthians, whatever it might be, he always dealt with specific issues to that area, to that church, moral issues, um, doctrinal issues. He encouraged them. He spoke into them personally. And our prayer and our hope is kind of to do that same thing, which is, Lord, what would you say to us here in 2020? And what would you t say to our church specifically? And, and what would you say to the church of South Florida? And so we feel the need to slow down and deal with different topics. So today we'll be looking at the gospel and spiritual warfare. And you can kind of maybe, if you look back, try to set up like where we're at right now as just a country, as a people, is how do we recognize that there is a spiritual realm and there is spiritual warfare? And what does that mean? And what does that look like? And how does that not be so ambiguous? Like how do we define that and talk about that? So Ephesians 6, if you're not there yet, turn there. Let me give you some context really quick. So uh, the book of Ephesians obviously was written to the church of Ephesus. Like, yeah, church of Ephesus. If you want to go back and read how that church started, how that church was planted, it's in the book of Acts chapter 19. And in Acts 19, you just see how this church came to pass, how it came to be. And it's really an incredible story. Paul goes to Ephesus. He actually spends three years there, three years of starting a new work, a new church in this area, in this city. Uh, I've been to Ephesus in Turkey. It's not modern day Turkey. Beautiful. I mean, you can even see the ancient ruins, the library that was there, some of the, like the Colosseum type of theater thing they have there. I mean, it's, it's spectacular even now, even though it's like in decay. Uh, but it was a very modern, very big coastal city, wealthy city. And when Paul showed up, guys, there was just supernatural works that were happening. We're told that people were being healed. The Holy Spirit poured out on people. In Acts, it talks about how Paul's handkerchiefs were used to heal people. Just bizarre things God was doing to that church. And if you've actually read Acts 19, it describes a specific story of these Jewish uh, exorcist brothers who are going around trying to cast out demons out of people in that city because that city practiced what we would call Wicca or practiced witchcraft, sorcery. And so these Jewish exorcists were going around trying to cast out demons, and they, they would say this. They'd say, we exorcise you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And they try to exercise demons out of people that way. And in Acts 19.15, just to kind of see the context, in Acts 19.15, this evil spirit said to him, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Now that's kind of terrifying if you think about that. Like, I know Jesus. I know Paul, the guy you mentioned, like that guy, yeah. But who are you? And then in Acts 19.16, you realize that they got a 
brutal beating. And a demon-possessed guy beat up these Jewish brothers, and they ran. It says they fled naked. Uh, They were beaten up, clothes ripped off. I mean, that'd be a terrible, embarrassing beating. And here's what happened. In Acts 19, the word got out about that moment, about that story, and they go, wow, there's power in the name of Jesus. Those who believe in him, trust in him, you can't misuse his name. And it says like tons of people are starting to get saved. And it says the city brought forth their books on witchcraft and on sorcery. And it says they burned their books on witchcraft and sorcery, totaling up to 50,000 pieces of silver. And I love the Bible because it's very specific and detailed because it's history. It's what happened. It's the way it went down. But think about that. A lot of money, a lot of time was involved in the spiritual realm, in the demonic realm, in sorcery, in witchcraft. People got saved out of that and are now following Jesus. And here's why I'm saying that. Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians, and he's dealing with spiritual warfare. They're very familiar with spiritual warfare. They're very uh, familiar with the spiritual realm. This is not foreign to them. They're not like, what is he talking about? This is something they probably got saved out of. And I want to, I'm starting to set the tone for really what we're going to talk about today, which is uh, two main truths I want to like, have you guys get right now. Here's the first one. One, there is a spiritual world. We've got to realize that. There's a spiritual world. There's a spiritual realm. There's the things that go unseen. And we, we really have to do see that. We, like, we have to understand that and embrace that. One of my favorite stories is in 2 Kings 6, where you have Elisha, the prophet, who is talking to the king of Israel saying, listen, the Syrians are going to come and they're going to attack here at this location. And the Syrians get word and say, this guy Elisha knows all of our battle plans. We have to take him out. So the Syrians send an army to Elisha, to, to his servant. They're surrounding Elisha, about to attack and kill him. The servant sees this army and he goes, Elisha, the Syrians are here to kill us. And he said, Elisha said to his servant, he goes, well, there's more of us than there is them. And then he said, Lord, I pray that you'd open up my servant's eyes so that he might see. And then the servant's eyes were opened and he sees chariots of fire around this army. He sees an army from heaven around this army. And if you remember the story, they go blind and Elisha wins. Anyways, but here's the idea. I just think right now in this moment, if our eyes could be seen to the things that are, not, that are, things that are around us, the things we can't see. I even think about this room. I think about this like, club going on right here. Um, I just think about the things. If our eyes could actually see what was happening, if our eyes could, could actually uh, be aware of all those moments when we're alone, when we're driving, when we're praying, when we're walking, when we're with our family, when you're with your parents, what if our eyes could actually see the spiritual realm? And there's something about that. There's something about us saying, God, help us be more aware of the spiritual realm. God, help us be more aware of the angels you created, the demons that have fallen from you. Help us be aware. Help us be aware of what's happening. So let me just say this. There is a spiritual world. And the next truth I want us to get as we talk about spiritual warfare is there is a spiritual war, and you and I are in this war. So understand this. There is a spiritual war. Not just a spiritual realm, but there is a spiritual war going on. You know, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is called, literally, he's called the God of this age, little g, but he's the God of this age. And in John chapter 18, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So there seems to be obviously this spiritual battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. And you and I, and what we do and how we pray and how we love and how we serve and how we talk truth, you and I engage in this spiritual battle. And it might not always feel like that. We might not always see that. But you and I have to realize that we are involved in this. And God has called us to participate in, you could say, the spiritual war. This battle between God bringing his kingdom to earth and Satan trying to prevail in his kingdom. You know, I was reading about them, uh, a Navy ship called the SS United States. Very interesting. In the 1940s, uh, our government spent $80 million, which is a lot of money back then. Now, it's, I don't know, it's probably billions. But it spent $80 million to build this 
passenger troop carrier. Uh, it was the fastest ship of its time. It could go anywhere in the world in 10 days. And it was just known for bringing like 15,000 soldiers in 10 days to get there. Like very advanced, very ahead of its time. But over time, that ship never got used. It was built like right after, right during the war, never used in the war. The only time it was ever put on standby was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, if you remember that. It's the only time it was ever put on standby. And then they turned the SS United States into a cruise ship. The government turned it into a cruise ship for politicians, for the president, for his friends. And it turned into like cruising around. And listen to this. Uh, it turned into from 15,000 troops that could only hold 2,000 passengers. It had 695 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck with a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. Now, here's why I share this. Um, obviously, the face of a soldier going into battle is a lot different than a face of a vacationer going into vacation. Um, your face and your, your body, your everything will be different. And here, here's the idea. Jesus, God, has called us to be a, a part of this spiritual war. And I wonder if what God has intended, what God has built, what God has made, maybe now we've become like a luxury cruise liner. Maybe now the church is more about our convenience. It's more about our needs being met. It's more about our desires. and It's about participating with God and bringing his kingdom to come, his, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God is saying, I've called you guys to be a participator, to bring, I want, to, I want you to be a, a 15,000 passenger, I want you to be a cruise, a, a, a tank, or not tank, a boat, whatever it is called. I want you to be part of this war, but I think in reality we become, in many ways, like a cruise liner. And here's why I'm bringing all this up. Uh, we're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about the unseen things that oppose the will of God. The unseen things, the unseen demonic realm that is trying really to oppose God's will, God's kingdom, the church. And how do we be aware of this? And how do we know that? Honestly, the things you and I say and do and how we live and act, how we pray, how we fast, how we give, how we serve, how does that participate and play a role in that? So I want to look at that. All right, so let's just read and then we'll talk about it more. But Ephesians chapter 6, let's read Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts or armies of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Let's just take a moment and pray, and I would ask that you'd bow your head, you'd close your eyes, and say, God, speak to me today. We want to hear from you. We want to participate in what this is you're talking about. So let's just take a second and pray. Father, we do ask that um, our hearts, our minds, uh, our ears would just be open to what it is you want to speak to us. Jesus, help us realize that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness. Lord, help us be aware of, just, of, of Satan, of his tactics, of the way he tries to defeat us or tempt us or just to get our eyes off of you. Help us be aware of how we are to fight. And, and Jesus, I ask for those of us maybe who are still kind of, we view this as outdated or silly, Lord, I ask that you just speak and move. They see that this is a very real thing, that right now, even in this moment, Jesus, there are things we cannot see, and we know that prayer does affect and does change things, and we just ask that you would speak and move in your wonderful name. Amen. 
C.S. Lewis wrote a very famous book, maybe you read it, maybe you've heard of it, called Screwtape Letters, right? And if you've heard about it or read it or know anything about it, it's about this elder demon discipling essentially a younger demon. So the elder demon named Wormwood is basically giving advice, or sorry, Screwtape is giving advice to Wormwood, a different demon, on how to tempt the person he's in charge of, how to tempt the person he's over, how to get him distracted. And it really is just a beautiful, well-written, it's fictional obviously, but book on just the enemy's tactics and the spiritual realm and how that plays into us today. So here's what uh, Screwtape said to Wormwood. He said, Wormwood, Wormwood, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patience, the believer, the Christian, in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, just suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. And persuade him that since he can't believe in that, he therefore can't believe in you. I think this is a very real tactic still to this day. I mean, we've got to talk about this. Obviously, we're the Western, postmodern, secular worldview has really influenced where we live, our nation, us as people, even in the church. We think we're beyond this, the spiritual realm, demons, Satan. Come on, we're past that now. Uh, Barna Research Group uh, polled, I think, about 2,000 Christians, people who call themselves Christians, and they asked certain questions about demons and Satan, and four out of 10 Christians in their poll came back and said they do not believe Satan or the devil is a literal person, but it's just a representation of evil. Four out of 10. And I think that's actually common, even way more so in our world, that if you said, is there a real devil, a literal devil, Satan, demons, uh, the common answer would probably be no, that's just there to teach us something about evil and good versus evil. Um, and when in reality, the Bible obviously has a different take on that, that Satan, that demons are very real, that just like we look around, this is our reality, there's an unseen reality, things we don't see. And I think the enemy's tactic is still very similar. How do we downplay this? How do we get Christians to believe and think this is no big deal? How do we maybe mock it or belittle it or kind of askew it a little bit? You know, I think when I talk about spiritual warfare, maybe all of our minds kind of goes to the exorcism where someone's like head is spinning around, there's vomiting everywhere. Like, we got to get that out of our mind, right? Let me just say this. There are extraordinary supernatural things that happen absolutely. We'll talk about that. But I think even more so and more commonly for us, there are ordinary supernatural things that play into our lives. And honestly, I'm probably more concerned for you guys, not just so much about the extraordinary supernatural things that can happen, but the ordinary things that can happen. I don't think we fully realize all that's taking place when we just sit alone with our computer. We're watching that show. We're listening to that YouTube personality, that Instagram influencer, the ideas they're sharing, the comments they're making, the comments you're reading, the lies that are being there are partial truth mixed with lies. I don't know if we're fully aware of all that's happening. I don't know if we're fully aware of the spiritual realm when we pray, when we're seeking God, when someone says, you know what, God, I want to know if you're there, and I want to seek you, and when someone opens their heart kind of to God, and I don't know if we fully are aware of all that's at play. I don't know if we as Christians know what's at play in our lives. When you determine in your heart, I'm going to love God, I'm going to serve God, I'm going to submit to God in this area of my life I haven't been, I want to fast, I want to pray, I want to do things differently. When you kind of take that stand, I don't know if we're fully aware of what's happening in the spiritual realm, and all that might be there to oppose you, and all that might be there to hinder that or get in the way of that. My thing is, I want to shed some light on this today because the Bible does a lot, a lot. There's a lot to say about this. You know, the Bible doesn't say, ignore the devil and he will flee from you. What does it say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, it says, be sober, be, be watchful because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We got to be very sober, very watchful. Just, just understand, because the enemy only wants to steal kill and destroy. 
His desire is how can I steal? How can I take away from your life? Take away joy, take away all that God has from you. How can I just kill the future, the dreams, literally kill, eternally kill you? How can I destroy all that God wants to do? We do got to be aware of that. I don't want to downplay this. You know, I, I do think that we all can have that tendency, maybe if you like watch, you know, cartoons growing up, it's like we think of Satan still in those red tights with the pitchfork. And I, I think it's almost like he's done a really good job of getting us to be like, okay, we all know that's not real. And just not understanding that there's a real enemy. Now, there is a danger, I think, in this. I think you can be overly superstitious, and I think you can be substitious. I think there are Christians who take this a little too far where you talk to them and it's like Satan is in everything. Like you went to Publix and they didn't have your favorite ice cream and you're like, oh, Satan withheld my favorite ice cream. Like, no, there's no ice cream. That's okay. Like that was not a demonic attack on your life. Don't worry. I just think sometimes we can overly be superstitious and at times I think we can be incredibly substitious. Just not aware of when you're alone in that moment with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend. When you're in that moment where you're kind of in a compromised situation, like is this good? I don't think we're fully aware of all that's happening. You know, C.S. Lewis went on to say this, another very famous quote, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased in both errors and to hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. There are those who really only look at that physical kind of realm in the spectrum. We can just downplay it. If I can't see it, feel it, if it can't be explained by science, I want nothing to do with it. And I think there are those who can just play into it too much, obsess over it too much. We're probably more in danger of downplaying it, I'd say. We're probably more in danger of not being, just being aware of it, being aware of how we actually do have a part in the spiritual realm, which is still bizarre for me. To, when I say that and hear that, that's some of this, that I have to like trust the scriptures when I read where you see people praying, where you see people preaching the gospel, when you see people uh, giving sacrificial or doing these things where they're advancing the kingdom and you see different forces trying to oppose them, we have to be aware of that. So here's three things I want to look at today from our text, all right? We're going to look at who we fight, how he fights, and how do we fight. All right, here's in Ephesians 6. Who do we fight? Who do we fight? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. How does he fight? And then how do we fight? So let's look at the first thing. Who do we fight? He clarifies this in verse 12. Would you look down, read with me, Ephesians 6, verse 12. Who do we fight? He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, I'm in a different version here, over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There's obviously physical uh, war, physical things that happen all around us. There's obviously physical battles all around us. You might look at just modern-day war, racism. We might look at just greed. We might look at certain things that are very physical, and you can see it. But behind those things, there's a spiritual reality to it. Behind those things that we're seeing, there's the spiritual forces, really, I'd say, creating that, hyping that, amplifying that. And we have to be aware of that. So even though there's a physical, there's also very much so a very real spiritual realm to this. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, here's why I want to bring this up. I think there's a lot of people today who say, listen, if, if it can't be explained by science, I don't want to hear it. Evil? Where does evil come from? Evil, they might say, is just a, a result of bad brain chemistry, bad just social life, social status, family, parenting. You know, we can basically trace evil back to just something physical, something material, something like that. I, I really struggle with this when, when people just try to overly simplify evil and say it's only a result of material 
or it can only be simplified by science. And I think that we got to see that the tables are turning. Listen, in the last couple hundred years of history, things seem to have gotten worse. Two world wars, ethnic cleansing, I mean, racism on another level. We've just seen a couple, we've seen many things happening to say, things don't seem to be getting better, but worse. Even as we progress, why does it seem to get worse? And we have to understand that evil might not just be natural because of bad brain chemistry, because of bad social life, because of bad circumstances that happen to people. Maybe there is supernatural evil. There's a guy named Andrew Delbanco. He's a secularist. He's not a Christian. He wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And he says in his book, maybe we as secularists and as postmodern humans actually don't have the answers to explain evil. He basically describes his book, maybe there really is supernatural evil. Here's a secularist who doesn't, not a believer in God, but he goes, our worldview doesn't seem to offer solutions to the problems of evil that we're seeing. And he kind of suggests this, and he, he actually brings up in his book, uh, the, this, I forget the it's Hannibal Lecter kind of story. What's the name of that movie? What's that called again? Silence of the Lambs. He brings up Silence of the Lambs. And he actually, in his book, quotes from this. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie or read the, or seen the movie or read the book, but in Silence of the Lambs, you have Hannibal Lecter, who is like a serial murderer by eating people. And you have uh, agent or officer Starling, and she's trying to catch another serial murderer. So she goes to pick Hannibal Lecter's brain. And in the movie, you kind of see this dialogue going back and forth. And Hannibal, uh, the guy who's a cannibal, anyways, uh, he, uh, in that movie, you see there's a psychologist, he's brilliant, and she's trying to pick his brain. And here's what she says. She says, what made you like this? She says, how are you the way that you are? And he, by the way, this is such a postmodern secular question. Like, what happened to you? Something had to happen to you. There had to be some sort of circumstance that happened to you. And Andrew Delbanco in his book, quick book quotes this and says, maybe there's something not. So here's what he says, and he's quoting from the movie. Uh, here it is. <clears throat> he says, in response to that, nothing has happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. And by the way, you can like hear Anthony Hopkins' voice. Oh, it's so creepy. Nothing's happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. Nothing has happened to me. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. <laughs> Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? Uh, in this dialogue between Hannibal Lecter and Officer Starling, he goes, maybe, maybe you're trying to explain it away, but maybe there's just pure evil. And this is what Andrew Delbanco, who's a secular, is saying, maybe we need to realize that it's not just bad brain chemistry. It's not just bad education. It's not just bad influences. Some of the most educated progressive societies that caused the most mass terrible murders on earth, whether that's Mao, Lenin, Hitler, some of the people who are the most progressive communistic countries have created over 100 million deaths in our century. And he goes, maybe, maybe that's not just because of bad education. Maybe that's not just because of, of bad uh, circumstances. All of these people had good families, a lot of money, a lot of wealth, a lot of influence. And yet maybe there is evil. Maybe there's something behind that. Del Banco in his book says this, and I'll quote it from here. He says, a gulf, listen, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and our intellectual resources available for coping with it. We see evil and we have no idea how to cope with it as just materialists, secularists. We have no idea how to justify it. And here's what he's proposing. Maybe there is supernatural evil. Why am I saying all that? Maybe you talk to people who just go, listen, I could never believe in Satan, devil, demons. I cannot believe in a literal Satan. That's just crazy to me. That's nonsense to me. I want to throw out three ideas, just like challenge that. And if that's you, or if that's someone you know, here's just three ideas to challenge that. Um, have you considered, first of all, maybe you are, maybe that person is being too simplistic. Maybe it's just too simplistic. It's just, just material. Maybe there's a multi-dimension level to this. Maybe you have to consider there is a supernatural realm. Maybe you're just approaching through bad education. There's something off neurologically. 
Maybe you can look at it through a sense of like neuroscience and explain it away. Or maybe you're being too simplistic and maybe there's another realm to this. Another thing I want to suggest is this. Uh, consider that maybe you might be culturally narrow. So if you really believe there's no Satan demons, maybe you're being culturally narrow. What do I mean by that? Um, most of South America, the Caribbean, Asia, Africa believes in the spiritual realm. Most of it believe in angels and demons. Most of it believe that there's literal, tangible uh, Satan, demons, devils, whatever you want to call it. They believe in that. Now, are you saying that they have no wisdom to offer? Are you saying they have nothing to bring to the table? Only the, the Western worldview is really the right worldview. Or maybe you're being culturally narrow and they have something to offer. Maybe they have seen things or experienced things, then you should consider them and what they have to say. You know, just being here in South Florida, guys, and what I've been a part of in just different moments in ministry, some of those moments where I go home to my wife and I'm like, uh, you won't believe what happened today. I, I don't have many of those, but I remember counseling a woman through Santeria. Uh, her and her family was just in that, really, that cult of Santeria. They'd offer chickens and goats, uh, animal sacrifices weekly. Her dad was very high up. When she left Santeria, you know, we walk through how she had to like really move out, protect her kids. There were threats on her life, on her family. She's trying to understand how she's kind of bled Santeria, kind of even like a mixture of some of the Catholic worldviews of Santeria with Christian worldviews. And she's trying to understand like how to separate them and just walking through that and hearing her stories of her dad and how every night at a certain time, he'd become a different person, have a different voice, talk in a different way, address himself in a different name and third person. And I had to walk her through that and just like, what was that? And it was just very real to her. Just very, that was just her life talking to different pastors and missionaries who've spent many years in Africa and hearing the stories they've walked through and went through and knowing child soldiers who've come out of that and listened to their stories about the bush and what they've experienced, the things they've seen, how they'd be cut up for, on their arms before they'd go into war and how they saw just supernatural spiritual things happen. My point is we should probably listen to people who've experienced those things, who've walked through those things. Maybe we're being too culturally narrow saying, no, obviously the Western progressive worldview is the right view. No. Maybe we need to be open to other things that are happening. Another three is this. I, I, someone says, I like, don't believe in Satan. I'll just ask, do you believe in God? Like, do you believe there's, there's possible that there's some sort of supernatural being that created everything that is over this? Yeah, and a lot of times people who are agnostic might even believe, yeah, there's a God. And the idea is if there's a supernatural good being, is, there, is it possible there's a supernatural immoral evil being? All of that to say is that we should highly consider that the evil you and I see might not just be because of bad education, lack of resources, a lack of money, or because of some other brain or neurological issue, maybe it's because there really is evil. Maybe it's because there really is a spiritual realm, and we should consider that, and we should talk about that. Because who, what is that realm? How does it work? How does it influence us? And so when I say, who do we fight? What does Paul say in Ephesians 6, 12? He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual armies, hosts of wickedness, armies of wickedness. He says, this is who we wrestle against. This is who we battle against. So for a second, uh, if you ever read a good systematic theology book, this might sound weird, but there's the doctrine of Satan, the doctrine of demons and demonology, and like what does that look like and mean? And so I just want to talk briefly about that. Who is Satan? Listen, Satan is an angel created by God who served God until he rebelled against God, and now he opposes God in every way. This is a simple definition. Created by God, he was there to glorify God, serve God, but then he rebelled against God. Now, where does the Bible talk about Satan? You can look at a couple primary passages, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, uh, Job chapter 1, uh, the book of Revelation in many different passages. You can see just kind of like how we put the doctrine of Satan together. Let me be really clear here. Satan is nowhere near being an equal of God. 
Uh, I know that might be an obvious thing, but I just want to be really clear. It's not like you have God and then you have Satan. It's like you have God and then you have Satan and infinitely far below. Like he's not an equal of God. He's a created being. I've had to like talk through this with my son when we, we talk about this. Cause we're like, we'll read the Bible at night and we'll read about the enemy or something. He's like, what's the enemy? And we talk about it. And he's like, oh, is he here? I'm like, probably not. Uh, I don't think he'd choose your room. Here's the idea. Uh, Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at once. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He doesn't know your thoughts. He doesn't know what you're thinking. Only God is omnipresent. Only God is omniscient. We got to know that. This obviously isn't a fair battle. We, first of all, we know God won. But we got to understand our enemy. And we got to understand the way he works. And in Isaiah 14, you really see Satan's downfall. He said in his heart, I will be like the most high. I will be like God. His, really, his downfall is pride. And I bring that up because I think a lot of us today, our downfall, or the reason we can't receive truth, or the reason we're so bitter and angry at the other, is because of pride. Pride led to his great downfall. Pride is the way which he might play into us, our egos, our desires, things we like. But we see who he is. Some of Satan's names or the descriptions of Satan, I'll just put it up here. I'll read it to you. Uh, Satan, he's called the prince of this world, the accuser of the brethren or Christians. He's called the serpent, a dragon, an angel of light. He's the destroyer, a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar, the father of all lies. He's the tempter. He's like a lion seeking whom he may devour. He blinds unbelievers. He's an opposer. He's a deceiver. And I said the lies thing. There, there's a lot of titles and actions kind of associated with him. But the reason why we talk about this is like we got to know who we really fight. Here's why I say this, you guys. Please hear this, church. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You know, it's probably the best way I've ever heard this, heard this put. If you don't have a Satan in your theology, you'll make everyone else to be a Satan. If you don't have demons in your worldview or in your theology, you'll demonize everyone else. The point is we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And we've got to understand this. No, no politician's my enemy. And you've got to understand that there's, the police aren't our enemy. That we try to make physical, tangible things, they're not our enemy. We can try to make a people group our enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness. And we got to understand that. And I, I love that because that, that is something as a Christian I go, realize, who's my enemy? Like, when I see someone saying something, doing something, evil, even evil, terrible things, I realize they're more a casualty of war than they are an enemy. That the enemy got to them. Even when you look at pedophiles, rapists, people have done terrible, disgusting things. You realize they're not my enemy. What are they? They're a casualty of war. The enemy got to them. They believed a lie. They believed Satan's tactics to some extent. And I realize I can attack, again, we've talked about this before, we can attack the idea that they might believe in the lies that Satan might be feeding them, but reality, they're not my enemy. So I have an enemy. His name's Satan. And it's the fallen angels, the demonic forces, the spiritual hosts of wickedness. And again, church, please hear this, because if you don't have a Satan in your theology, you and I tend to make everyone else the Satan. And we got to fight against that. We have one enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness. But we do got to be aware of how he fights. And we got to be aware of how he might even use people. And so let's talk about number two. How does he fight? How does Satan fight? Would you read uh, number two? Would you read verse 11 with me? And I'll kind of unpack this. But how does he fight? Uh, it says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, there's not a lot there. Let me explain this. Maybe your translation says the schemes of the devil. The word in Greek is methodia. It's methods or strategies. That Satan has strategies. What are his strategies? We, we got to get this, all right? Because it's not like you wake up one morning and it's like, you know, Monday morning. Satan's like, hi, good morning. It's me, Satan. Uh, around three o'clock, a car's going to cut you off and you're going to swear profanity. You're going to see a beautiful girl walk by at five o'clock and you're going to lust in your heart. That's not going to happen. All right. Like he's not tell you his strategy. He's not tell you his plan. But the point is we got to be aware. What's his strategy? Like what does this look like? So there's a lot of things we could talk about and break down. I want to talk about his strategy. Primarily three thoughts. All right. We're going to look at his strategy. Temptations, accusations, 
and lies. So how does Satan fight? Temptations, accusations, and lies. You guys with me? You guys okay? Yeah? Temptations. All right, first of all, we see that right away in the beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. We see that with Jesus in the wilderness. First of all, he's really good, and he likes, and he's prone to tempting. I want to recommend a little easy read uh, for you guys. Thomas Brooks, he wrote something called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he talks about seven different ways Satan might tempt us. And I want to just walk through this. How might he tempt us or what kind of self-talk is happening in our heart or, my, or our mind that might be from the enemy? Here's the first thing. All right, seven ways something tempts us. Number one, he shows you the bait but hides the hook. Satan's really good at saying, here's the short-term pleasure, but he doesn't show you the long-term consequences. You know, give into this, do this, believe this, buy this. No one will know. No one will see. Who cares? This is very common. This is normal now. He shows you the short-term pleasure, but he hides the hook, and he hides the long-term consequences. Number two, uh, he gets you to rationalize sin as a virtue. We're really good at this. Not only can we, like, justify sin because we all have that little lawyer in our heart, like, well, this is why I can do this. All right, not only does he get you to rationalize sin, but to rationalize as a virtue. Maybe this is a good thing. Here's how it could be a good thing if I do this or give into this or teach this. And he gets us to rationalize even sinful things as a virtue. Another way he tempts us is by showing you the sins of Christian leaders. This is easy. We can look on the news and go, oh, another pastor fell. No big surprise there. You get very cynical, very critical. We can look on at Christian leadership and say, well, it seems like no one's, no one's believes this. Everyone's just a hypocrite anyways. And then what that does is you go, well, I guess, God, I can do whatever I want. I guess I can justify sin in my own life. So it might get you really critical towards other leaders. Number four, uh, by stressing the mercy of God. I think this at times can be used by Satan. It's like, well, come on, you know, God's a, God's a really good God. Like, if you give in, I mean, God's going to forgive you. I mean, isn't that God's job, right? He's to forgive you. And he gets you kind of like to rationalize the mercy. Like, yeah, he will forgive me. Like, like, I can sin against God. He might get you to rationalize through that. Another way, number five, is by making you bitter over suffering. I think this is actually more common than we think. People who've gone through a lot, suffered a lot, maybe had a bad day, bad week, we rationalize sin. I've had a terrible day. I can just go on the computer and look at pornography, whatever, not a big deal. We can rationalize sin that way. Maybe you went through something, people oppressed you, did something hurtful to you, harmful to you, said something to you, and you go, you know what, they did this to me, I can do this to someone else. They wronged me, I'll wrong them. And it can make us incredibly bitter over our suffering. Number six, by showing Christians how many bad people seem to have great lives. I mean, this is today, listen to that. He tempts us by showing Christians how many bad people have great lives. Like, we look at social media, and like, it's, it's just all a facade. It's all a lie. It's like, oh my gosh, they're like, where are they in this house? Like, are they in, they're in Bali? What the heck, man? And then, like, you, you think they have, like, a great life, but in reality, like, their marriage is falling apart. They're miserable. They're, they're just, their lifestyle, they're addicted to different things. And we can put on a show, but the idea for us as a Christian is we look at this, and we go, oh my gosh, they don't love God. They don't believe in God, and their life is going great. Their life is going great. God, how can we seem to bless those people? And then you can almost believe this lie that, that God blesses people who don't serve him or don't love him. Number six, or number seven, getting you to compare one part of your life to another. A lot of times, the, the way the enemy can tempt us is we compare one part of our lives to another. I've, I've heard it this way. It's kind of like the mafia, like a mobster is like, well, I'm really good at my mom, so I can whack this guy. Like, no. Like, sometimes we can do that, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good in this area of my life, so I guess I can do that. And, and we kind of look at one area, like, I'm doing well here, so therefore I can fail here. Obviously, scripturally, I would like you to look at this more. First John 2 talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. First John 2 says, Satan gets you to look at it. Like, remember in Genesis 3, it says this, she saw that it was pleasant and she saw that it was good for food and that it would make her wise. Lust of the flesh, the, the food looked actually good. Lust of the eyes and pride of life, it can make her wise. I mean, we see that with Satan and Jesus in the wilderness. 
We see that with the bread, with the stone. We saw it with throwing him up on the temple. Hey, if you just worship me, you know, I'll give you all the kingdoms. Appealing to his pride, appealing to his flesh. I mean, the whole idea is Satan does have certain strategies and tactics. And the reason why we're bringing this up is we've got to know know this. Know when your mind begins to rationalize temptation in this way. Uh, It's probably you're being tempted. It's probably from the enemy. So we've got to first understand that, number one, his strategy is temptation, obviously. There's many ways in which he might tempt you. Number two is this, though. Uh, Satan's strategy is accusation. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He's really good at making us feel miserable about our sin. He's really good about that. And he does accuse us night and day, the Bible says, before God. Whether accusing you or accusing us before God, you seem to do this with Job in Job 1. He's a God, God. I mean, Job only worships you because you're so good to him. You know, I know that he will curse you. Like, you just seem constantly accusing, belittling, demeaning. So Thomas Brooks in this book, I'll mention four ways that Satan accuses us. Four ways he accuses us. Number one is so important. How does Satan accuse us? Number one, by causing us to look more at our sin than at our Savior. I think the best way Satan accuses us is that when you sin, you just focus on your sin. You think about your sin. You're, you're dwelling on your sin. You're meditating on your sin. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this. God could never love me. God could never forgive me. And what happens is he's getting you so much to focus on your sin rather than your Savior. Understand when we sin, there's two options, either a great condemnation or there's great conviction. Conviction is this awareness uh, and even shame to go, oh my gosh, I can't believe. But there's a side of where conviction pushes you to Jesus, but Jesus but Jesus, your blood has set me free. But Jesus, this is not defining me. This is not my identity. I might have sinned. I might have messed up. I might have given in. But Jesus, that does not need to be now my lifestyle, my pattern, my habit, my practice. You set me free from that. The point is, I think the best way he accuses us is you just focus on your sin rather than your Savior. I talk to people who it's like, and I get it. Some things you've done. And I get they can eat at you. And they can, you can walk with it for years and years to come. I don't want to downplay that. But you have to keep in mind, do you meditate? Do you dwell? Do you contemplate more about Jesus and who he is and his work? Do you plead the blood? Do you, do you meditate more on Jesus even more than you might meditate on your sin? That's the first way he accuses us. Number two is this. Uh, Satan causes us to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. And it's like, well, I can't undo this. And he's like, yeah, you can never undo this. Look what you did. You hurt this person in this way and look what, you ha- look what happened. You kind of stay in that place. Another way he accuses us is making Christians think that the troubles they are going through must be punishments. If you've ever gone through something like, God, you must be punishing me. And listen, Hebrews does, Hebrew 12 does say that whom God loves, he chastises, he pursues, he disciplines. Absolutely. But you can see this taken to an extreme where it's almost like Christians start to believe in karma. There, I did this, therefore God must be punishing me. And like, you think that God just constantly trying to ruin your life rather than redeem your life. God's not there trying to ruin your life. He's trying to redeem your life. But Satan can accuse you to think God's trying to ruin your life. In reality, he's pursuing you, he's disciplining you, or he might be trying just to really redeem you. Number four is this. Another way he accuses us by making people think that their inner struggles and feelings that they have is something that Christians couldn't have. It's the Christian who thinks, well, if I'm truly a follower of Jesus, I shouldn't have this desire. Why do I think this way? Why do I identify in this way? I could never, I could never if I'm a follower of Jesus. And sometimes there might be desires or thoughts that Christians have, and then we go, see, hi, you're not a Christian. And listen, there, there's a very real reality to, to this where the Bible says, examine yourselves, test yourselves to whether or not you're in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Literally, that's what it says, examine yourself, test yourself. There's something healthy about that. But to this point where you just have this accusation after accusation of like, oh, I could never think this or feel this if I, if I was a Christian. No. And God just, there's sanctification process, and God's trying to work on you and, and walk with you, and yet you can be really quick to just say, there's no way. And I'm just saying, here's the point. Satan's called the accuser of the brethren for a, reason, for a reason. He's called the great accuser for a reason. I mean, this is what he's really good at. 
He's really good at tempting us. He's really good at accusing us. He's really good at trying to condemn us so we, we feel like cut off from God. We feel like we can't go to God. We feel like we can't go to the cross and just understand and rest in the finished work of Jesus. That happens. But here's what I want to say lastly. He lies to us. And this is probably the biggest one of our day. Understand this. When it says the schemes of the devil, the strategies of the devil, the methods of the devil, how does the, how does the enemy fight us? How does spiritual warfare work to, today, 2020? I want to say probably primarily, primarily through lies. That I'd say that Satan lies a lot. And lies are always believable. And lies always sound good. And lies actually kind of to appeal to our flesh. We're like, I want that to be true. And we got to understand how the enemy does work through lies. We have to. So there's this conversation going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus says, you call yourself sons of Abraham, but in reality, you're sons of the devil. And so I'm going to read this story to you. It's John chapter 8, uh, verse 43. Listen to what Jesus says. He says to the Pharisees, why do you not understand my speech? Because, I'll tell you why, you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, his own resources, from himself. Why? For he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus is like, don't miss the point. Satan is the father of all lies. He's the originator of lies. Genesis 3, hey, Eve, did God really say the day you eat of it, you'll die? Yeah, he did. Uh, but maybe God is saying that because he knows the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. He's the father of lies. He's the inventor of lies. He's the creator of lies. The point is he's got really good at lying. A lot of times you don't know when you're being lied to. We live in a really weird moment where I'm like, I don't even know where to go for truth. Like, what's happening in the world? I'm like, I don't know what, where to read. I don't know what, what, what journalists, is there objective journalism anymore? I don't think so. Like, I don't know. Where, like, where do we go now for truth? And here's what I think the Lord's doing, honestly, church. It's like removing all other options to say, really, you have one option for truth, and here it is. Like, I really do believe right now, we need to know this book, know the scriptures. I mentioned this last week, but this is like a burden for me that I think we might be in one of the most biblically illiterate generations ever right now. Like, we live in a time where we have the number one printed book in the whole world every single year is the Bible, and yet very little people read it. And I just think God's saying, listen, right now, um, there's not a lot of places we can go to for truth, so let's, let's start here and end here. Like, honestly, let's go here. My point is, Jesus is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus speaks truth. He is truth. He's a person of truth. Truth is not even necessarily an idea or concept. Truth is a person. That's such a beautiful, beautiful truth. Truth is a person. But Jesus offers, obviously, teachings. Jesus offers his way of living. But I would say right now, more than ever, we need to go to truth. That we have to understand, you really don't even know. Like you, you and I, it's easy to believe a lie and not know it. There's blind spots in our life. Sometimes you need other people to say, hey, here's a blind spot. I love you. I see this in you. I want to I hold the mirror of the word of God to your life. And do you see that blind spot in your life? And we need to go back to scriptures. I would say, guys, press into community. Ask older followers of Jesus for years and say, do you see areas of my life where I'm believing lies? Am I compromising my personal value with the scriptural value? Where is that intertwining? How is there a little bit of, I see the bait, but there's a hook hidden? There's something behind it. God, give me discernment. I really think our generation would be so much better at discerning truth if we knew this book, that we could discern truth that maybe this person's using me and this person's using me. Maybe they're manipulating me. Maybe they don't have my best interests in mind. Maybe I need to know the word of God a little bit. And I'd say that would God would give us great discernment in the process. Let me just read it to you this way. One pastor said this, here's the nature of Satan's strategy. It's, it is deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Please hear that again. His, his strategy are deceitful ideas that play into disordered desires 
that are normalized in a sinful society. Know that his lies normally play into like an emotional value of mine. Know, know that they're going to play into to like disordered desires. That it's going to be something we, we want it to be true. And so he's going to offer it as this. We're going to think it's truth because we so badly want it to be true. We have to be really aware of that. And when I say he plays into emotional value, think about it, I think about it like this way. Like, it's not like Satan's tempting anyone or trying to lie to someone like, yo, 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 hey, psst. Kobe's alive. And I'm like, oh, I knew it. Thank you, God. Like, okay. Like, that's kind of partially what I actually do want to believe. But he's not trying to tempt me with that lie. He's not trying to tempt the world with that lie. He's trying to play into this lie of, hey, listen, don't you want this to be true? That, I mean, most of the people want this to be true. And you know what? And, and we can believe, eventually begin to believe into that truth. And eventually say that is truth. When in reality, he's playing off for our disordered desires. We have disordered desires. We have to realize at what point in time maybe is a progressive secular worldview kind of intertwining with the church. We have to realize mm, this is not so good. So us as a church, I say, man, we need to we have a moment to grow in compassion and let's do that. But maybe is that being manipulated? Is our desire to be compassionate being manipulated? Maybe there's some sort of view right now on sex, gender, marriage, and you're, we're told, we're taught, oh, this, this is a social construct from the patriarchy to manipulate and oppress you. Or maybe God created sex and gender and marriage, and it's beautiful, and it's God-given, and it's God-designed. Maybe it's not just, maybe there's certain lies we're taking on or believing and embracing in our generation that God's saying, you have to discern the truth in this. Listen, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he said this, um, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And I really do believe that maybe we're not set free. Maybe we feel addicted or bound to certain things because the truth of Jesus hasn't set us free yet. You know, one way of saying it, and, and just hear it this way, truth and lies have zero power over us until we believe them. So please hear this. Truth and lies have zero power over us until we believe them. Meaning, let's say you're in prison for something, and the jailer comes in, he opens the door, and he goes, all right, you're free to go. And you're like, I know how this works. Nope, I'm not free to go. He's like, no, no, like, you're free to go. The door's open. You can go. It's like, no, no, I'm going to stay right here. All right, you have to believe that truth and walk into that truth to be set free. There's certain truths of the gospel of Jesus. It's like, hey, you're free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And you're like, mm, sounds too good to be true. The point is you have to believe into that truth and walk into that truth. It's just the same thing with lies. There might be a lie that you believe into, and it keeps you captive. It's no one loves you, no one cares for you, God doesn't care about you, God can never forgive you. Do you know what you've done? Do you know how bad you are? You're a hypocrite. And you believe that lie and go, yeah, God can never love me. Yeah, no, no one can ever care about me. Yeah, and you would believe into these lies and that's how we're now trapped. And my point is the truth of Jesus, man, that will set you free. Like we have to believe into that and walk into that and, and just carry that out. And there's something about saying, Jesus, you are the father of all truth. Satan, you're the father of all lies. Help me discern between the two right now in this moment. There's probably not a greater need when it comes to spiritual warfare than to discern between truth and lies. And I'd say, listen, church, let's press into the word. Let's discern. Let's, let's compare it to scripture. Let's fact, let's fact check it by the Bible. Let's kind of go, okay, God, is this your word? And just process it with other believers. And listen, this is why we take so much time studying the Bible and exegeting truth and pointing truth out. It takes a while. It takes hard work. It takes discipline. You can't just read a cool little tweet in one sentence and be like, that defines my life now. Like, it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time to develop this and understand this. We kind of have like this one little slogan statements things and like that defines who we are now versus like, you no, know maybe it's more of like a thesis and it's going to be a lot longer and a lot more developed, a lot more thought through. And that's why we study the way we do. That's why we try to break this down and understand and exegete. And we want to do our best to say, not my opinions, God, but what does your word say? And that is our hope in this process. Listen, spiritual warfare can happen through temptations, accusations, and lies. And I so say, let's be aware of that. Like right now, we need to be aware of that. Tim Keller, I can't go a whole story without Quentin Keller. He says, Satan doesn't control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in the heart. And I believe that is just the case. How is he controlling you or me? Uh, how does he control the church? How does he control any sort of leadership with lies within the heart? 
This can happen on an individual level. This can happen on a social, cultural level, political level, business level. This can happen on so many levels. And what are those lies we're giving place to? We're going to say, no more, no more. Even if there's elements of truth. There might be an element of truth to that, but it's like, you know what? I'd rather have the truth of the gospel. Jesus' way of, of justice is the way I want to do it. Jesus' way of love is the way I want to do it. Jesus' way of sexuality is the way I want to do it. I'm going to surrender. Even if there's partial truth in those statements, I'm going to surrender that for what the truth of God's word says. And this is how we can be aware of how we fight. So if you're not all mad at me yet, let's do this. Number three, how do we fight? Number one is how he fights or who we fight. Number two is how he fights. Number three is how do we fight? Can we look at verse uh, 10 really quick again? Ephesians 6 verse 10, how do we fight? He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13, let's skip ahead. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to the stand. All right, there's two things I want to point out. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and put on the whole armor of God. Now, if you grew up in church or Sunday school, that sounds really ambiguous and like child ish, and maybe you like grew up in like the flannel boards, and they have like the soldier, and they put the little, I don't know, that's maybe just me. Um, but you think about the armor of God, like what does that even mean, Paul? What are you even saying? Like what's happening here? Let's talk about this. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. But how do we fight Satan? How do we fight lies, temptation, accusation? How do we fight? By being strong in the Lord and the power of his might. What does that even mean? That means I am resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That means when sin comes my way, when temptation comes my way, when accusation comes my way, when lies come my way, I'm going to the person of Jesus and saying, Jesus, Jesus, you have set me free. You said on the cross, it is finished, so therefore it is finished. I'm resting in who you are and what you've done. My sins no longer define me. My past no longer defines me. Those things, and my future doesn't define me. The person of Jesus and the work of the cross, that's what defines me. I'm going to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Amen? Amen? We're going to be strong in that. Saying, I'm going to boast in the finished work of the cross. Paul even said this in Galatians. He goes, I'm not going to boast in the flesh. He goes, God forbid I boast in the flesh. If I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be strong in the Lord, the power of his might. The greatest verse that probably summarizes this is Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 2. He says, listen, and you, everyone say me, and you, me, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Jesus has made alive together. God has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Listen, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against you, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. This is such good news. He goes, the sin, the handwriting requirement that was against you, you could never keep God's commands. You could never keep God's law. You could never be right before God. He was all of that and all of your sin was nailed to the cross. The idea is when Jesus was nailed to the cross, think of it like your sins was nailed to the cross, your decisions, your sinful actions, your future actions, all of that was nailed to the cross. That on the cross, my sins, my past, who I am, death to Josiah, alive to Jesus, all of that was nailed to the cross. So how, does he, how do we be strong in the Lord, the power of his might? It means I am resting in this finished work of Jesus. And notice what Paul said in Colossians 2.15. He goes, and Jesus on the cross, he made a public spectacle of them. He made a mockery out of them. He made Satan and demons at that moment look like a fool. You think you won, you lost. Victory came through death. Victory came through suffering. He goes, you think you won? The Son of God, 
who came to the world is dead, he's going to be alive in three days. And he made a public spectacle, a fool of them. He disarmed principalities and powers that their weapons are not going to work against us. They don't have weight against us. That we do not engage in this warfare with physical means or physical instruments, but with, with supernatural means and instruments. And we pray, we rest in the power of Jesus. And this is what he's getting at. And, and here's why I'm saying this. I know this is sometimes easier said than done. I really do get that. But there's something about when you realize when temptation comes, when lies come, when accusations come, and you realize you're not fighting this battle from like, I need to win it, and you can understand that Jesus already won it, it changes how you play. If you know you won the game, and you're like in those like last few minutes of a quarter, and you're like, this is just wait, like you know you won. You can play more freely, you can play differently. It's like if you're like this bully in the yard, and you're like going to go up to him, and like your big brother's behind you, and you're like, no, like my big brother's behind me. There's just something free about that, and that is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus won. His victory is our victory. I mean, the gospel is the truth that, that uh, we're not fighting for victory now, that we're fighting from a place of victory. And that changes everything. If I know I'm not fighting this spiritual battle to get victory, because maybe one day I'll fight really well, maybe one day God will let me in heaven, but that's not the case, that Jesus already fought it all, Jesus already paid it all, and now I'm fighting from a place of victory, that just changes everything. You know, we got to understand that there's still, listen, the war is won, but there's still battles. We get that. Like, let me just say this. We know how the, the, the Bible ends. We know how it ends. You read Revelation 20, Satan's cast into hell forever. New heaven, new earth. We rule and reign with Jesus. Amen. Right? Like, we get it. We know how it ends. The war is over, but there's still little battles. The, the best way I could probably illustrate this is on April 9th, 1865. Robert E. Lee, Ulysses S. Grant get together. Civil War ends. They sign the peace treaty. Civil War comes to an end. Good news. Thank you, God. The Civil War is over. The nation's history has changed. But what happened? There's actually still battles happening that day and days after. Why? That peace, though signed, was not enacted. That the, the war is over, but there's still battles because the war didn't fully get out yet. And actually, it's at Fort Blakely in Alabama that battles were going on, and many, many lives were lost on both sides, and death was still happening, and the guns were still real, and the death was still real, but even though there was peace and the war was over. And that's kind of the best way we can illustrate the moment we're in. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin, hell, Satan, death. The war is over, man. We can fight from a place of victory, but there's still these little battles going on. And the war is still just as real. The battle is still just as real. The war is won, but there's still little battles. It's so hard to realize that we still have these little moments that we have to battle. Like church, we have to battle through prayer. We have to battle differently. We're not, we're not fighting against flesh and blood here. My enemy is not some person or some group or some people. My enemy is principalities and powers. It's the lies that are being fed. See, so, and it changes how I, because I, I love this. I just, I know I said this, but I love this. It changes that way because no longer is so-and-so my enemy or this person my enemy or that group my enemy. They're not my enemies. They're, they're a casualty of war. That the real enemy is Satan, is demons. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And thank you, Jesus, for that. Now, the reason why, again, you and I need Satan and demons in our theology and in our worldview is because if you don't have that, you will make everyone else Satan and demons. And that's why we see people demonizing people and demeaning people and dehumanizing people. And that's why we have to have this in our worldview because we know who our true enemy is. And guess what? We know Jesus already defeated him. We know he already won. And we can rest in that finished work of the cross. And, and here's what I say. When it says put on the full armor of God, there is the idea that I know those different, there's six different analogies being given. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. There's these different truths communicated, but please hear what it's saying. It's just saying, hey, from head to toe, go into battle. Hey, like, you're going to fight this battle. Guess what? You're going to need shoes, good shoes. You don't want to slip up. You want to advance the gospel. You're going to need a helmet. Guard your thoughts. Guard your thinking. Guard your mind. You're going to need the breastplate of righteousness. Guard your heart. Guard what the enemy might try to feed you, manipulate you, 
motivate you, feed into yours and my disordered desires and be aware of that. Robe yourselves in Christ's righteousness, who he is, what he's done. Take the sword of the Spirit. Man, know the Word of God. Know the Bible. Know this book. Have it written on your heart so that, that you might not sin against God. Like, know this book. Love it. Eat it up. Enjoy it. He talks about the belt of truth, the thing that holds everything else together, the thing that keeps everything else together. If we don't have truth, nothing else is held together. That we have, the reality is Jesus. Jesus is reality. As Hebrews literally says that phrase, Jesus is reality. He's who we're living for, what we're living for. Who's, he's who we're made by and made for, and this is what holds everything together. And church, listen, again, the enemy's tactics. He's going to tempt, he's going to accuse, he's going to lie. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. So here's what I want to do. Uh, I do want to spend some time where we can just kind of invite the Lord. I don't want to just have him ever a service. We're like, okay, that's it, bye, goodbye. I would like for you to give some room and some space to say, Lord, I want to hear from you right now. Where are there possibly lies in my life that I'm believing into, that I'm making my identity rather than my identity being in you, Jesus? What area of my life am I having not yet surrendered to you fully yet? And I just want you to kind of give a moment, like, God, is there a lie right now I'm believing? Is there, is there some impartial truth that I'm making full truth? So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to close out with some prayer. Why don't you just take a second, bow your head, close your eyes. Uh, we're going to kind of have just that, an atmosphere of worship for a second. I want to pray over you guys, but I would like you guys just to take a second with the Lord. And if you want to even have a journal open or something, just, just write. Like meaning, if the Lord reveals something to you, like, hey, there is this area in your life that you're believing into. There's this area in your life that's not a part of my word, of my truth of the gospel. Maybe God in this moment is just saying, offer it up. Maybe there is a worldview that we're embracing that's not from the Lord. I just want to give space for the Spirit to move and to work. I want to, get, in a sense, just get out of the way and let God speak that to you. So I'm going to take a second up here. I'm going to pray quietly. I'm going to ask that while I'm up here praying quietly, you just take a second, pray quietly. Just say, Lord, search me. Have I not fully yet surrendered my life to, to you, Jesus? You are truth. Have I not fully believed in the gospel of Jesus? Am I a prisoner still in the cage? The door is open, but I have not yet walked out of the door. Why? And I would say, listen, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. So I would say, press into the truth of Jesus. Acknowledge who Jesus is right now in your life. Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are God. Jesus, I'm done. I'm done giving you part of my life. You get all of it. Just give him some space to move, to work, to reveal. We're going to be quiet. We're going to be still. And then I'll close out in prayer.